Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness. It's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. Welcome to Vitality Radio. Today, we're going to talk about brain health, how to prevent Alzheimer's, dementia, and all of those nasty neurodegenerative diseases. We're going to talk about things that uh, are in the latest research by one of the greatest researchers in that field, Dr. Dale Bredesen, will be back on the show with me. Before we get into that, I'll remind you of a couple of things coming up. The Be Healthy Utah conference is at the Expo Center in Sandy, the Mountain America Expo Center. Be Healthy Utah is the name of the conference. You can go to BeHealthyUtah.com, use the code VITALITY30, and you can get your tickets for just 30 bucks for both days. Normally the price is 47 You can hear me speak on Saturday at 11. There are 35 other amazing speakers at this conference, all kinds of awesome booths. If you're into natural health, you need to be at this conference, the Be Healthy Utah Conference. It's such a fun time. I can't wait to go back after missing it for because of COVID over the last couple of years. So love to have you there. BeHealthyUtah.com, promo code VITALITY30. That's how you get there. Okay, and then, uh, of course, Vitality Radio, always brought to you by Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful. We've got a brand new website, so no matter where you are listening, whether it's podcast or on the radio, you can jump online, vitalitynutrition.com. That's vitalitynutrition.com, and uh, we run all kinds of fun promos. We're building out the site to, uh, to be bigger and better, to have blog articles and all kinds of other good information as well, so stay tuned for that also. So, and of course, you can call us anytime from anywhere, 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662 with any questions that you have about anything that you hear on Vitality Radio. One more announcement before we get to Dr. Bredesen, who's going to take almost the entire show, and it's an awesome interview. I've already done it. I'm telling you, I absolutely loved it. I think you'll definitely want to hear what he has to say about keeping your brain well. But I've also started another podcast with a wonderful group of people called React 19. That's R-E-A-C-T, R-E-A-C-T, 19, React 19. Uh, I am the host of a podcast called Dearly Discarded. Dearly Discarded is a podcast all about the hidden stories uh, that uh, were censored during the pandemic and are still being censored now, but we're giving them an avenue to get out on the Dearly Discarded podcast. You can check it out on any of your favorite podcast players. Uh, We have uh, just a couple of episodes up right now, but we'll be adding at least one every week uh, for the next uh, several months. I hope you check it out, Dearly Discarded Podcast. And now, without further ado, I'm going to welcome my guest, Dr. Dale Bredesen. Dr. Bredesen is a neurologist and a neuroscience researcher at UCLA. Last time he was on was just a little over a year ago, and I believe I had more 
feedback and excitement about what we were talking about on that show than almost any show that we've done. Dr. Bredesen, welcome back to Vitality Radio. Great to be back, Jared. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. We were able to have a, a quick chat before and talk a little bit about what we wanted to go over. And some of the stuff that you shared with me is brand new news to me, and I'm really excited to share it with my listeners. So uh, let's uh, let's give quickly for people who are not familiar with you a little bit of uh, history, uh, your personal history as a researcher and what you do. Yeah, we've been interested in my laboratory and for 30 years in the nature of the neurodegenerative process. So we wanted to understand because neurodegenerative diseases have been the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure. As they say, everyone knows a cancer survivor, no one knows an Alzheimer's survivor. So we were interested in the mechanisms. And this led us ultimately to translate our research findings into a protocol, which we call RECODE protocol for reversal of cognitive decline. And the idea here is that that is addressing the various contributors. So the fundamental finding from the laboratory is that Alzheimer's and potentially other neurodegenerative diseases represent insufficiencies in the support of various neural subnetworks. So for example, if you look at people who are developing Alzheimer's, this is all about neuroplasticity, as you know. And so that has a supply. You're supplying that system, that synaptic system, with all sorts of nutrients and trophic factors and hormones and energetics and oxygenation and mitochondrial function and so forth and so on. And on the other hand, it's got a demand and the demand goes up, if, for example, if it is under inflammation, if it's got various infections, the demand goes up if there are various toxins involved and things like that. So the idea here is that there is a mismatch between a, the supply, which is too low, and the demand, which is too high, the relative of those two, the relationship of those two is off. And therefore, you go into a downsizing mode. And in fact, you can trace the molecular pathways to see this mode. So the old fashioned notion that you're just gonna give a single drug and that's gonna cure Alzheimer's really doesn't make sense when you understand that the fundamental nature of this process is as a an insufficiency in a network. So again, just as you know, if you take a country, country is a big network, and you say, you know, something's not going right with the country. Um, are we going to have, you know, one person change? We're going to, you know, we're going to change uh, a governor of one state. Uh, that's probably not enough. You need to address and identify all of the different contributors. And typically with people who are developing Alzheimer's, we find between 10 and 15 different contributors. Some people are insulin resistant. Some people have sleep apnea. Some people have leaky gut. You can just go right down the list. We initially identified 36 different players in this network. There are more now, but it's, but it's not thousands. That's the good news so that you can address those. So we reported back in 2014, the first examples of reversal of cognitive decline. We've had a very exciting and very positive clinical trial that's freely available publicly now on MedArchive. Uh, and has just been accepted for publication as well. And we're just starting a new trial as well. So we're very enthusiastic about this network medicine type of approach as, a po as opposed to a monotherapy approach, which really doesn't make theoretical sense and has not, as you know, has not had positive outcomes. 
Well, you know, it's interesting that I first discovered you uh, when a customer of mine actually at Vitality Nutrition brought in your book, The End of Alzheimer's. And not knowing who you were, not having any uh, information on the book prior to that, the title sounds hyperbolic to some degree because of what you said. Nobody knows Alzheimer's survivors. Uh, so the I was half curious and half dismissive when I first when I first saw the cover of your book. Now I read the book and uh, it made all kinds of sense and my background is very much in the holistic way of looking at things and trying to figure out you know how do we that the body I believe to a very large degree is intelligent enough and capable enough to heal itself if given the right inputs uh, and in many cases, if the right things are removed, the toxins and things that are bogging the body down and its healing processes. But there certainly wasn't a lot of information and still, well, you you can clarify this, I guess, but it seems to me there's still not a bunch of people out there saying, hey, we can fix this thing. We can fix dementia. We can fix cognitive decline. We can fix Alzheimer's. What's your answer to that? It's a great point, um, and I don't blame anyone for being skeptical. Please read a newer book, uh, which is called The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. And in that, seven of the people who all were told, you know, give up, there's nothing you can do, all improved and have remained improved. We, the, the, the first people actually got on our protocol in 2012. So they're now uh, 10 years out, and, and many of them still doing very well. And so seven wrote this their wonderful first-person stories about their journeys and what happened to them, what what they did, how they got better, how they stayed better, and what they're doing today. So it was wonderful for me to, to look at these stories. And this is, of course, why we are doing the trials. There's only, again, there's only one yardstick, ultimately, which is clinical outcomes. Does the research lead to an approach that actually makes human beings better and keeps them better? And, you know, I understand that there's so much politics around and, you know, billions and billions of dollars, over $40 billion have been spent in the development of drugs for Alzheimer's with no real successes. This is very sad to hear. And unfortunately, people dying on, you know, on and on and on. And so we have to look very carefully at what's the outcome. Are people actually getting better? And in our trial, uh, people did get better. 84% of them actually improved. And now I'm saying, when I say improved, not just slowed their decline. So with the drug trials, you're not looking at improvement. You're not even looking at stabilization. You're looking at a slowing of decline. And the argument with the FDA approval of the drug uh, Aduhelm back in June, was whether it had 0% or whether it was a 22% slowing of decline. That was one dose in one trial. And as you know, with the approval of that, uh, three of the experts on the FDA panel actually resigned over the approval of that drug. And Medicare has tried to inject a little sanity by saying, well, we're not going to be giving it willy-nilly because it's extremely expensive has side effects of brain hemorrhage uh, and brain swelling, and in one case, death, unfortunately. Um, and the best it does, the best is to slow the decline by 22%. It doesn't make people better. So as whereas what, what we're reporting is actually improvements in cognition, 
that are sustained. So I think it's important, again, be as skeptical as you like, look at the data, read the papers. That is absolutely critical, and I expect you know, everyone to do that. But ultimately, you have to look at, you know, are the outcomes better with doing a precision medicine, personalized sort of approach, which is what we've taken, which is a network medicine, essentially, approach, or are they better with a single drug? Well, and again, with the way I, I see things, the uh, the network approach makes a whole lot more sense to me for sure. Uh, give us the title of that book one more time. Yeah, so the most recent book is called The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. Right, and again, seven people. Read. Yeah, and that one just came out uh, in 2021. All right, excellent. I look forward to that one. I'll add it to my list. Uh, that's and, and it's exciting because anybody listening to this, I, I imagine at this point, maybe nobody listening to this podcast right now doesn't know somebody who has experienced dementia, uh, cognitive decline, Alzheimer's, uh, some variation of that. And coming from my perspective, personally, uh, I experienced, uh, I watched my dad decline with Parkinson's for 10 years uh, before he passed away. And my mother, who took a, a fall and was sharp as a tack up until that point, uh, took some significant damage and dealt with dementia for the last six months of her life. So watching that decline, watching what that does is, uh, it's about, in my book anyway, as brutal a way as somebody can go that you could possibly wish on anybody. And so this topic for me has a lot of personal meaning to it. And, and I, anything I can do to get information out to people who can help that can help them avoid those outcomes is very, very important to me. So I, I absolutely appreciate the work that you're doing, Dr. Bredesen. Yes. So I appreciate that, Jared, and, and I appreciate the, the desire to get this out because it is important. You know, and, and the first thing I would say is we have to recognize that this touches just about everybody. If you look at the pandemic numbers, we're over 1 million people who have died in the United States in association with the COVID-19 pandemic. For comparison, Alzheimer's will take the lives of about 45 million of the currently living Americans. We often hear that 6 million Americans wow. have it. Yes, but that doesn't include all the young people who are going to get it in the future. Mm -hmm. So if you look across the board, we're talking of the 330 million living Americans, somewhere around 45 million will die of Alzheimer's. So it's huge. Now, the way to reduce the burden of dementia nationally and globally is, of course, to get people early. Okay, well, we had a little technical difficulty, a computer glitch, but we are back with Dr. Dale Bredesen. And uh, Dr. Bredesen, you were just talking about the 45 million of us here in America that uh, if things stay as they are, we'll end up with uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, if, go ahead and finish your thought and we'll keep going. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you, Jared. So as you can see, it is actually dwarfing the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of numbers of deaths unfortunately. 
And so what we what we need to do to reduce the global burden of dementia is to get people on active prevention or earliest reversals. And unfortunately, everything that is set up in terms of dealing with Alzheimer's is backward. So for example, people will say, well, don't worry, you only have mild cognitive impairment. And here's why that's actually a very damaging term. When you develop Alzheimer's, you go through four phases. So in phase one, you are pre-symptomatic. In other words, the beginning biochemical changes are already happening. And these can be shown, for example, by PET scan or by spinal fluid analysis, but you don't have symptoms. And then the second phase is called SCI, subjective cognitive impairment. That's where you know there's something wrong, your spouse, your coworkers may notice something, but you're still able to test within the normal ranges if you have a cognitive test. And so most people are told, ah, yeah, you've got some complaints, but it's just part of normal aging. Uh, that's the time to get, you wanna get in in those first two phases, either for prevention and everybody 45 years of age or older, should have a cognoscopy, just as we know we get a colonoscopy when we turn 50. Don't forget about your brain and get a cognoscopy uh, if you're 45 or older. And that just means some basic blood tests, uh, an online cognitive assessment, and if you already have symptoms, to include an MRI with volumetrics. But you, that's optional if you don't have symptoms, if it's purely for prevention. So as I say, SCI is the second phase. And this goes on about 10 years. This has been shown epidemiologically. So we really have a tremendous window to prevent and reverse cognitive decline. We really can make this a rare condition, hard as that may seem to believe, but it's because people wait till the later stages. Now, the third of four stages, which is really a late stage, we, should, we can think of this as relatively advanced stage Alzheimer's, is called MCI, mild cognitive impairment. This is like telling someone you've got mild metastatic cancer, so don't worry. And so unfortunately, people are sent home all the time. Ah, it's only MCI, not a big problem. Don't worry about it. When this is a time for very active intervention and preferably before MCI. Now, five to 10% of people with MCI each year will become demented, will now go on to the fourth phase, full-on Alzheimer's disease. And by definition, that means that they've begun to lose their activities of daily living. The longer you wait, the harder it is to get complete reversal and the more you have to do. This is why we encourage people, please get on active prevention or earliest reversals. That's the goal. Okay, so a couple of questions about that. Uh, most people probably haven't heard of a cognoscopy. Uh, where can people find information on what needs to be done to really uh, get thoroughly checked out? Yeah, you can look at uh, mycognoscopy.com. That's the easiest way to do it. Um, and again, it's some simple blood tests. Unfortunately, your doctor is typically not doing the critical blood tests that are looking at the actual drivers of cognitive decline and risk for cognitive decline. So as I say, step one, some blood tests, and then two, a simple online cognitive assessment. And by the way, you can, you can take an online cognitive assessment uh, for free. Simply look up the CQ tests. So C as in cat and Q like question. So CQ test, and you can see where you stand uh, and whether in fact you're already beginning to have some symptoms. Because again, 
uh, things change so slowly that people are often fooled by it. So I hear things all the time that, you know, I'm probably okay. Well, it's just a little bit of aging. One of the common ones I hear from people is, well, you know, my spouse isn't perfect either. Well, okay, then, you know, you're, you should both come in and let's get you both on prevention or earliest reversals. Because the reality is with SCI, we can make essentially 100% of those people better. With MCI, as we showed in the trial we did, those people all had either MCI or dementia. And again, 76% MOCA improvement, 84% uh, the online cognitive assessment improvements. But it's harder than it is with SCI. You have to do more. And then finally, with full-on dementia, uh, some of those people improve, but not everybody. And again, it's, it's harder and harder as you wait longer and longer. Okay. So mycognoscopy.com and the, and the CQ test, we'll uh, link both of those in the, uh, in the show notes for uh, people listening. So you can check that out on the podcast uh, app that you're listening to uh, right, or right after we're done with the show. So you have that information. So then with people that are, uh, well, well, let me ask you this. You, did you say, uh, did you give an age for when you think people should start having uh, those, that blood work done? Yes, I mentioned 45. So okay, anyone who's 45 years of age or older should get tested. Now, the, the, the rare exception is the person who has, the, has familial Alzheimer's in their family, and that's only about 5% of all Alzheimer's. And this is where people will often have symptoms in their 30s, sometimes even into their 20s. Now, if that's the case, what you want to do is whenever the people in your family are getting ill, you want to go 15 years earlier than that. So if they're at 35, you want to go in when you're 20, because obviously we want to get you started before you are developing the symptoms. So how much is Alzheimer's then uh, about genetics in your opinion? Yeah. So for the vast majority of people, genetics will be about predisposition. In other words, it increases your risk, but it's not your fate. It's only those very few people where it seems that 100%, and those are it's just three genes, APP mutations, presenilin-1 mutations, and presenilin-2. For the vast majority of us, the major risk factor is ApoE4, and there are about 30 other genes as well that confer risk, but the big one and the common one is ApoE4. So three-quarters of the population does not have ApoE4. They're typically ApoE3.3 or ApoE2.3. So you have, of course, one copy from your mother, one copy from your father. And so for three-quarters of the population that is ApoE4 negative, your lifetime risk for Alzheimer's is somewhere around 9%. It's not zero, but it's not terribly high. For the people who have a single copy of ApoE4, and that's 75 million Americans, and all should be on prevention. Again, when you get to 45, please be on prevention. Their risk, lifetime risk is 30%. And for those who have two copies, and that's 7 million Americans, and of course, the vast majority don't know it. And so therefore, important to find out and get on active prevention. Their risk is well over 50%. In some studies, 90%. So in other words, Everybody, yeah. So, so the bottom line is, you know, most likely you will get Alzheimer's unless you go on active prevention and earliest reversal. So, please, again, 
get on this, you know, so make it so that very, very few people get Alzheimer's. We really can have a situation in which this is a very rare disease. Unfortunately, because we wait until very late, because we're not doing the right blood tests, because the doctors are not up to speed on this, because we're going after these monotherapies that really don't address what's actually causing the problem, and because of the, our ongoing lifestyles and the various things, the toxin exposures we have, the leaky gut that's so common. Uh, insulin resistance, about 80 million Americans have insulin resistance, and it's a well-proven risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So because of all these things, we end up with this being a relatively common disease, unfortunately. Okay, so then with the uh, information from mycognoscopy.com, uh, the, the information on learning about the APOE4 uh, situation you're dealing with is there as well? Absolutely. Okay, excellent. Well, I'm going to have to check that out. I'm four, almost 50, yeah. so it's time for me to, to get checked myself. Absolutely. I appreciate that information. All right, so then uh, there are... There are a few things that you brought up that I think are really, really interesting. One is, of course, the the metabolic situation when it comes to um, insulin sensitivity. People who are diabetic or pre-diabetic is there is their risk dramatically higher than it sounds like it would be. Absolutely. So, you know, again, years ago, we talked about diabetes and non-diabetes. Now we understand before diabetes, you have pre-diabetes. And before pre-diabetes, you can have insulin resistance. So that we're getting in earlier and earlier, which is better and better news for people who would otherwise develop diabetes. And yes, if you have type 2 diabetes, your risk is about three times that of a person who does not have diabetes. If you have insulin resistance, it's still clearly higher than those without insulin resistance. So we look at something called the HOMA-IR, which is a score that's simply based on what is your fasting insulin. Unfortunately, most doctors aren't checking fasting insulin, so that's included in the cognoscopy. And then you also want to look at your fasting glucose, and those two together will give you your HOMA-IR and tell you whether you have insulin resistance. And then, of course, the third piece there, it's also helpful to know your hemoglobin A1C, which is also included in a cognoscopy. And that's more, to be fair, that's more commonly done uh, by standard of care physicians as well. But you want to know all three of those. And then you want to know other critical parameters. Do you have ongoing inflammation, another critical risk factor for cognitive decline? Do you have a reduction, a suboptimal amount of various nutrients, trophic factors, hormones, things like that? Do you have ongoing vascular disease? All these sorts of things are all critical to your risk for cognitive decline. All right. So then let's say that someone who, someone at a younger age listening right now uh, with concerns about you know the potential for this, you said forty five million of us uh, are are lined up to get this at some point uh, right now, which is a devastatingly high yeah. number. Uh, yeah. They want to do what they can right now to help prevent this. What are the primary preventative steps? 
Right. Well, the most important thing is actually to get the blood work done so that you know what your risk is. Because remember, it's going to be different for each person. Right. So some people will have a risk for what we call type 1 or inflammatory Alzheimer's disease. Some people will have risk for type 2, which is atrophic. It's a different process, but it still leads to Alzheimer's. Okay. You can imagine this by picture supply and demand. You know, if the demand is too high, that can be from inflammation, that can be from toxins, for example. If the supply is too low, that can be, for example, uh, from redu reduction in oxygenation or mitochondrial function or blood flow or trophic factors, hormones, all of those sorts of things. So this evaluation will tell you, are you too low on the supply side? And if so, why? Or are you too high on the demand side? And if so, why? Or both? so that you can target those things. Now, you bring up a good point that what are some basics that everybody can do? Although I don't suggest treating blindly, um, it's fine to start that way, and especially if you're just there for prevention. So we think in terms of seven different areas, and that's diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training, some targeted supplements, and, and uh, detoxification. Those are the seven basics. Then your practitioner, we've trained over 2,000 practitioners from 10 different countries and all over the U.S. now, can help you to get on the critical and address the things that are actually causing decline if you should ever develop it. But yes, absolutely, there are some basics that everyone can do to lower the, your risk. And as I said, they start with your nutrition. Uh, for most of us, we need to get on a plant-rich, mildly ketogenic diet. We call this KetoFlex 12-3. And by the way, you know, ketosis has been used very effectively to treat people who have type 2 diabetes. Right. And that's actually working very well. And so it turns out to be important for your brain as well. And a plant-rich diet with high fiber and with appropriate periods of fasting, these are all very, very helpful. And not having food for three hours before bedtime, giving yourself at least a 12-hour window from when the last uh, food you have at night to the first food you have the next day. Typically, it's 12 to 16 hours. For people who are APOE4 positive, 14 to 16 better because they actually hang on to and absorb lipids better than those of us who are APOE4 negative. So there's a mm. tremendous amount you can do. And of course, I wrote about this in the book and a second book, which, which is called The End of Alzheimer's Program. People had asked for more details. And so we did that. And actually, I worked with a person who is APOE4-4 who's doing this for herself very effectively, Julie G, who's a citizen scientist and really a brilliant woman who had early onset changes and has done very, very well, has gone from 35th percentile on her cognitive testing to 98th percentile oh, wow. on her cognitive testing and really pegged it there. And she's now 10 years into this. And she, again, very, very high risk with two copies of APOE4. So it's clear that it can be done. And by the way, she's one of the seven stories. She wrote a beautiful story about what happened to her and, you know, telling her son that she had early Alzheimer's and having him cry. And now she was at his wedding and, and how much better things have gone. Hmm. So she's done very, very well. So that goes into detail about the 
power of this particular approach to nutrition. And I think, you know, we're hearing this everywhere. When I trained in medicine back in the 1970s, there was one course at our medical school and it was optional. You could take it or you could avoid it. That was about nutrition. And actually, I did take that course, and it was not particularly helpful. They basically taught us that vitamin C is thermolabile. That was the gist of what we learned in that course. Wow. So we didn't hear about ketogenic diets. We didn't hear about uh, cognitive decline and, and the tremendous impact that it had. We didn't hear about what Dean Ornish found and, and published years later, which is that you can reverse cardiovascular disease with appropriate dietary intervention, all those sorts of things. So then exercise. There's some great new things now with katsu bands, for example, and EWOT, exercise with oxygen therapy, tremendous amount that can be done with exercise. Again, supporting blood flow, supporting oxygenation, supporting uh, the production of factors that, so that will improve your insulin sensitivity as well. All sorts of things that come out of that. Sleep, again, most of us don't get optimal sleep. <clears throat> and by the way, wearables are changing the landscape for many of us finding out you know you whether you like an aura ring or whether you like an apple watch or whether you like you know dream 2 or on and on there are all sorts of things people can now do to see where you stand see where your heart rate variability is you know you can now uh, very easily look at everything from your telomere length to your uh, gut microbiome to your heart rate variability to your sleep stages uh, to you know to your blood pressure you know on and on and on so there's so much that we can do to make sure that we don't have the appropriate lifestyles and and the physiological changes uh, that predate and then are associated with cognitive decline. Um, and then, you know, um, stress is, is another big one. And again, all sorts of things that you can do about this. All of this is uh, written about in that, in that third book as well, First Survivors of Alzheimer's. We go into detail about what can be done about each of these. Brain training, Professor Mike Mersnick from UCSF pioneered this years ago. And his Brain HQ, which is what we used in our trial, uh, works very well for helping people to improve their brain function. Uh, and then I mentioned targeted supplements. And, you know, people will say, well, supplements aren't a cure for Alzheimer's. Of course they're not. But leaving them out, leaving your neurochemistry suboptimal is not the right thing either. So you want to actually look to see, is your zinc slightly low? And, you know, many of these risk factors are risk factors for both cognitive decline and for poor outcomes in COVID-19. Uh, both, and that's because both of these diseases have something in common. Your innate immune system, your inflammation is outstripping what your adaptive immune system can deal with. So in COVID, when your adaptive system is not working well, you're not clearing the virus. What happens, you have cytokine storm and people die from cytokine storm. In Alzheimer's, it's cytokine drizzle. In other words, it's many years of mild increase in cytokines because again, your infl inflammation is too high and your adaptive system hasn't cleared the various things that are actually causing this protective response, which is what Alzheimer's actually is, this protective response, as I mentioned, it's an insufficiency of dealing with these various insults. So that's critical as well. And, you know, low zinc, low vitamin D, these things are absolutely critical. Low magnesium, uh, you know, uh, hemoglobin A1C, which is increased, and, you know, obesity and, and uh, insulin resistance, all associated with poor outcomes from COVID and with increased risk for Alzheimer's disease.
Um, and then, as I mentioned, detox. I have been surprised uh, because when when I was training in neurology, we were not taught that cognitive decline is associated with exposure to various toxins. But now we know that three different types of toxins in organics, things like air pollution, there's a large literature now and a growing literature on air pollution increasing risk for cognitive decline. Second one uh, is organics, things like toluene and glyphosate and benzene and formaldehyde, also increased risk. And then the third one is the biotoxins. Again, a big surprise, uh, things like mycotoxins, trichothecenes, ochratoxin A, gliotoxin, all increase risk for cognitive decline. So you want to know about these things. And again, there are some basics you can do. You know, again, detox basics we go into in the book uh, and the, the things that everyone can do to reduce their toxic burden. Excellent. So let's uh, jump back just a little bit with sleep, just to give people a, a little bit of a target. Uh, what are you finding in the research is required in terms of sleep? Yeah, great point. And of course, uh, I was just at a at a large meeting where I gave a talk, and and uh, Matthew Walker, uh, who I was is going to ask excellent, if you're familiar with him. Yep, yeah, talked to Matthew uh, there, and he gave a tremendous talk about how important sleep is for optimal immune function. Uh, as he pointed out, one sleepless night and your immune function declines. Uh, one sleepless night and your cognitive function takes a hit. So it's actually amazing how important this is as part of an overall program, an overall protocol to get best outcomes. So you can see even just taking that one parameter, it's so critical. Now, the things that we typically find, number one, people don't get enough hours of sleep. So just quantity. Number two, quality. They often are uh, having Either they wake up frequently in the middle of the night uh, or their oxygenation drops. This is a common one. People don't realize it, and unfortunately, their doctors don't check. Everybody should find out whether they are dropping their oxygen status at night. Now, we've always been taught, well, that's, that's sleep apnea. Yes, but there are, if you have sleep apnea, you probably are dropping your oxygen saturation at night. However, there are many people who don't have sleep apnea who are still dropping their oxygen saturation at night. And it's turning out that in some people, it's because they have relatively small airways. And now a nice, really nice uh, group has come out called Vivos has come out with a, a way actually to expand that airway, which I think is a wonderful idea in people where that is rate limiting and to get better oxygenation at night. A paper came out a few years ago where a group showed very interestingly that simply looking at your mean, your at your average oxygenation at night, your oxygen saturation at night, correlated beautifully with the size of various nuclei within your brain, including your hippocampus, which is one that takes a big hit in Alzheimer's disease in most cases. So therefore, if you are sleeping at night and you're either not having enough sleep at night, you're waking up frequently, or you're dropping your oxygen, or your heart is racing, all of these things will decrease uh, your effectiveness of your sleep. And so it's good to check. You can check this with a, an oximeter. You can check it with an Apple Watch, for example. You can check it. As I understand, the new Aura rings are now going to be able to check oxygen saturation as well. Fitbits, the new Fitbits can also do that. So, Or you can just simply ask your doctor, check it, or, or loan you an oximeter, or do a sleep study. So there are many ways to find out, and everybody 
should know because it is critical for your risk for cognitive decline and of course for cognitive performance most people don't realize that they are suboptimal they can do better with their cognitive performance if they optimize those very things yeah and i think anybody listening has had a rough night of sleep and felt the brain fog that comes along with that that's a fairly common uh i guess the quick side effect of, of, a, of a poor night's sleep. It's funny that we're having this conversation. I was up at four o'clock this morning flying back from Los Angeles. I'm working on about four hours of sleep and I, and I can feel it myself. So yeah, yeah, the sleep thing is a major, major factor. Uh, as far as supplementation goes, you mentioned magnesium. Uh, on the, the, the last time I had you on, you talked about a specific form, the magnesium 3 and 8. Is that still what you're recommending uh, for optimal uh, benefit for the brain? Yeah, so it's actually two different things. So you, you want okay. uh, so the magnesium 3 and 8 is a good thing because it actually gets into the brain. But you also want to remember that uh, magnesium is critical for your gut. Uh, and for other yes. things as well. And so t taking another form as well, uh, you know, such as, you know, some people like uh, citrate, some people, uh, you know, like glycinate. Um, it again, it depends on effects on your gut. Uh, some people will do better with one or the other. And there are other forms as well that people use. There are these now, you know, seven different forms in one pill and that sort of thing. Right. So they're essentially, it's two different ideas here, one for the brain and one for the, the body. Yeah. And I've found personally that the combination of three and eight and glycinate works really well for me, but I do think yeah. it is a bit of experimenting to figure out your dose and, and uh, yep. what's an effective dose. And it's important to understand too, magnesium plays a major role in the stress response and your body requires a higher level of magnesium when you're under a lot of stress. So with stress being one of the big factors in uh, potential for cognitive decline, then magnesium becomes even more important. Uh, you also mentioned, uh, well, actually you didn't, last time I had you on, you mentioned omega-3s. And uh, I was going to ask you, because I don't think you clarified back then, but in terms of the the potency of omega-3, what are you seeing in the research and what are you recommending that people do as far as that goes? It's a great point. Uh, and you know, we'd like to see people based on work from a number of groups, including Professor Wortman from MIT, who's done beautiful work over the years showing how important DHA is. So of course, that's a long chain omega-3. So we'd like to see typically at least one gram of DHA and about okay. half of that, about half of that in EPA. So 400, 500 of EPA, kind of that range, uh, because of course it has different effects on things like inflammation. Right. So these, and these are both important. Uh, the very short chain ones, fine, that's great. And you can certainly get them in, in uh, your diet and things like that. But as you know, there's a relatively inefficient conversion to the longer chains in your body. So yeah. we like to see those. And for anyone who's got ongoing inflammation, so, you know, if your HSCRP is up one, one and a half, you know, uh, in that range or even higher, um, then also check out uh, the SPMs, uh, these pro-resolving mediators, because that helps to now uh, resolve the inflammation, then you can go, then the omega-3s uh, really help you to prevent further inflammation. Uh, now, having said that, of course, it's also important to find out what's causing your inflammation. Yeah, because for some people, it is a leaky gut. For some people, it is changes in the oral microbiome. For some people, it's chronic sinusitis. Very frequently, we find that people have chronic undiagnosed pathogens. 
Uh, so this may, again, may be sinusitis, it may be Borrelia, maybe tick-borne illnesses such as Borrelia, Babesia, Bartonella, Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, things like that. It may be chronic mold-related diseases. Uh, you know, we're, we're really at a, at a change of an era. When I was taught medicine years ago, it was about diagnosing something, what is it, and then giving a prescription or sending people to surgery. Now it's about why is it? Human organisms are much more complicated. We as physicians have gotten away with for hundreds of years doing very simple things because we didn't have uh, sophisticated tests to tell us, here's here, here are the epigenetic changes. Here's the whole genome. Here are the biochemical changes. Now we have all of these tools. So we have to begin to be addressing people as complex organisms and quit this idea of, I'm going to spend you know seven minutes because that's what my healthcare group will allow me to spend. And I'm going to write you a quick prescription and move on to the next person. Uh, we are complicated organisms. And that is critical for brain function. It's critical for cardiovascular disease and you know, all all the complex chronic illnesses that are affecting us now. And so therefore, yes, you know, it amazes me that I practiced for many years without understanding that, yes, we need to optimize all these parameters. For example, we talked about whole coffee fruit extract before, which increases your brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Very helpful as a part, again, not by itself, but as part of an overall protocol getting people's vitamin D levels optimized, their vitamin E levels optimized, their magnesium, as you mentioned, their zinc, uh, as we talked about, which is critical for immune function, critical for insulin, for insulin resistance. Some people uh, then things like uh, chromium that can be very helpful as well for, uh, for easing the insulin resistance. And mm -hmm. of course, starting with appropriate nutrition. All of these things address us as complex organisms instead of as, you know, seven minute prescription pad, uh, you know, people who, who, who are, who are uh, going to be stuck with these treatments that have been ineffective. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I love that you keep bringing that point up that it is looking at the whole picture, uh, not just the illness itself, but how do we actually get ahead of the illness? And, and uh, certainly that's what Vitality Radio is what we're always looking for here. Uh, with vitamin D, I get a lot of people asking me, and I've heard a lot of different opinions. When you say optimized, is there a number that you like to see people at when they're uh, getting their vitamin D tested? Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, again, we physicians have a what's called within normal limits, WNL, uh, right. jokingly, jokingly referred to as we never looked in some circles. But the problem <laughs> is that this is has nothing to do with optimization. This only says we took a bunch of people, we checked their levels, and this is within two standard deviations of what we found. Uh, okay. Great examples being homocysteine. Normal homocysteine is up to 12, uh, but in fact, optimal homocysteine is only up to 6. You don't want to be at 10, 11, 12. Beautiful studies out of the, EK, uh, out of the uh, UK showing that, in fact, as you go above 7, your brain shrinks more and more rapidly. And in fact, mm. that bringing it back down will prevent that. So with respect to vitamin D, typically we like to see people in the 50 to 80 range. Uh, 
you know, shouldn't be very high above 100, but it shouldn't be low. It shouldn't be down in the teens and 20s, which we see all the time. When you, I mentioned the homocysteine, so we want to get you appropriate B12 levels, appropriate folate levels, appropriate P5P levels, a form of, an active form of uh, vitamin B6. So mm-hmm. all of these, again, are critical to get best outcomes. And and it's important to understand too when when uh, you you talk about the normal range. I talk about that a lot on Vitality Radio. the The normal range in many cases is such a wide range. Vitamin D is a great example of that. Depending on the blood test I've looked at, it's like thirty to eighty is is kind of typical. I've seen some that go higher than eighty as the normal range. But you mentioned fifty to eighty as being at least the window you'd like to be in, which means that you can be in the normal range and be twenty or thirty or forty points lower than what is actually optimal. Uh, so don't necessarily just look for the red mark on the blood test that says you're too low. Look at where you're at in that range when you get your blood test and and, uh, make sure that you get that optimized. You know, this is a really good point. And I think one good example is vitamin B12, uh, where you can, of course, die with B12 deficiency from pernicious anemia. When I trained, normal B12 was considered to be 200 to 900. Mm -hmm. Well, you could actually die from B12 deficiency with a normal B12. Uh, if you, you know, you could be at 220, 230. And so it's, it's so men, what happened was the reports started to wow. come out and the, and the labs would say, uh, please beware that you can have problems even with this low normal. So you, you really want to be above 500. You don't want to be down at 280, 300, even though some labs will consider that to be, quote, within normal limits. It is not optimal for your neurological function, nor is it optimal for your hematological function. And so then, again, these numbers that you're talking about, uh, this uh, on the mycognoscopy.com, uh, all of these are part of the tests that you're recommending. Absolutely. And, and we, okay, in, in there, we also give you, you know, the, the optimal lab values because, again, you, you don't want to put yourself at, at risk. Super. Okay, so now let's talk about this. You are a uh, consultant for Life Seasons, uh, and uh, there is a product that they developed with your uh, assistance uh, that is called NeuroQ. Now, when I first had you on over a year ago, we had sold a bit of NeuroQ. And people had, so far, the feedback had been good up to that point. I had actually started using it, had been using it for maybe a month or something close to that when I talked to you uh, last. I have used it ever since. What's been interesting about that, though, is that unlike brain formulas that we've sold in the past, and I'm very frank with my clients at Vitality Nutrition, if somebody says, hey, does this work, I'll tell them if I have seen good results or I haven't seen good results and what those results have looked like. And of course, we're talking about anecdotal evidence and all that. But when it comes to the NeuroQ, unlike most of the brain products that we've sold over the years, people recognize a significant benefit very, very quickly. And I've never had a product, I don't think, even even outside of the, the brain health uh, side of things, where someone has bought it, come back in with literally within days and bought more for their spouse or their mother or their grandfather or whatever it is saying, this stuff works so well, I had to come back and get it for uh, somebody else that I love that I'm concerned about. What is it about that formula that makes it fit in with all of this that you're talking about in terms of preventing cognitive decline? Yeah, that's a great point. So again, there is no lying about the outcomes. And so you have to get 
good outcomes and look at what actually is going to drive you there. And with NeuroQ, I agreed to be a consultant for Life Seasons because they are doing the right thing in terms of formulation. They are addressing the very neurochemistry that you and I have been talking about, whereas other groups have not typically done that. At least a number of them have not done that, which is really unfortunate. So what was done then was that Life Seasons went out and did a trial uh, to look at whether this formulation uh, actually has impact. We know that it does theoretically address some of the critical variables for cognitive decline. And when they did the trial, um, they got very positive results and actually they submitted that for publication. A separate trial was done in Japan, also gave positive results. So those are the sorts of things with, you know, absolutely, you have active data. You also have, as you described, the subjective improvements, but we know from the data, this is not just about a placebo effect. And that's why I agreed to uh, to, to work you know with with them on this particular approach. Uh, and so I think you know again this is the future. We've had a lot in the past about you know take this because someone says to take it, and there are no data that suggests that it's actually helpful. In this case, they actually have data uh, that show very clearly that people improved. So we're understanding again that you have mm -hmm. to you have to hit you have to address multiple different parts of a network to get the best outcomes. And that's what is being done with that particular approach. Excellent. And of course, we have uh, gone actually over the time that I intended to go. I think I could talk to you for at least another few hours about this, uh, but I, I value your time as well. So I'm going to wrap it up with just a couple of quick things and then let you uh, say anything else you'd like to to finish this up, doctor. Uh, first off, in the uh, description, the podcast description, if you're listening, if you're listening on the radio, jump on the podcast and look at the description. I'm going to link to all of these places that Dr. Bredesen has talked about. We'll link to uh, how to find the books that, that were referred to. We'll link to mycognoscopy.com. Uh, we'll link to the CQ test. Uh, we'll, all of that information will be there. There will be a link on uh, getting more information about NeuroQ, uh, the magnesium, and so on and so forth. So all that will be there. You, uh, if you were driving down the street and you couldn't take notes, that's okay. We've taken notes for you. We'll have that for you there. Uh, I, I will mention just really briefly, uh, Dr. Bredesen mentioned Dr. Matthew uh, Walker. Matthew Walker, his book is called Why We Sleep. It is one of the most fascinating things I have ever read. Uh, I highly encourage that one as well. There's just been such great information here, uh, Dr. Bredesen. What else would you like to close out the show with? You know, I think the point is that for the first time, there is hope. Please don't wait. Please, let's all work together to reduce the global burden of dementia because we now have the ability to do that. Please get evaluated. Please get on active prevention. Or if you're beginning to have symptoms, please don't wait because there is a tremendous amount that we can all do to reduce the global burden of dementia. Excellent. Dr. Dale Bredesen has been my guest. Dr. Bredesen, thank you so much for your time, for your expertise, and really for the importance of the work that you're doing. This is incredibly valuable to so many of us, and uh, we are thrilled. I know I'm not speaking just for myself uh, with the new evidence coming out that we really can do something to not just uh, prevent this, but even reverse it. Uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, cognitive decline, and all its variations. Thank you so much for what you're doing uh, for the greater good. 
Thanks very much for having me, Jared. And, you know, getting the word out, every single person that can be helped, that impacts a family, it impacts a community. So there's just so much for, from helping every single person. So thanks very much for spreading the word. Absolutely. And we're going to go ahead and wrap this up, and I'm going to let Dr. Bredesen go. I love my job. What a great interview. I really enjoy having Dr. Bredesen on and hope to have him on again soon to get us even more of the latest research on brain health. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's show, give us a call at Vitality Nutrition 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. Or check us out online, Vitality Nutrition. Dot com. That's vitalitynutrition.com in store and online. We do have um, some specials going on on the NeuroQ and uh, magnesium uh, 3 and 8 that we talked about and omega 3, that kind of thing. So uh, definitely check us out. We'll be happy to help you with any of your needs at Vitality Nutrition. Okay, we've run out of time. I've got to go. If you like what you hear, go tell somebody. Check us out on the podcast, on all your favorite podcast apps. And if you're kind enough and uh, inclined enough, uh, jump on Apple Podcasts and leave us a written five-star review that helps us spread the word. Thank you so much. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been Vitality Radio. You've been listening to the Vitality Radio Podcast. Enjoy your week. In the meantime, Jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it. Vitality Radio is researched and written by Jared St. Clair. Our awesome music is by Brian Bob Young. Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. The FDA has not evaluated this podcast. This podcast is provided with the understanding that information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for care by a medical professional. Thank you.